I'm sure you may have heard the story before of the man who uh, lived along the banks of the Mississippi River and a, a flood was approaching and the sheriff came by and he warned Mr. Johnson that uh, you need to leave your house because the river's flooding is coming down, down river and your property's gonna be covered in water. And Mr. Johnson just smiled at the sheriff and said, oh, don't worry about this sheriff. God's got this, God's got a plan for me. I'm gonna be all right. And well, soon enough, the water started to creep into the, Mr. Johnson's yard and it wasn't long before the sheriff came back by, but this time he came in a boat and he had a bullhorn and he called out, Mr. Johnson, Mr. Sheriff, I'm coming here to take you to safety. And Mr. Johnson walked out on his porch and he just smiled real big. His porch now looked more like a dock though because the water was so high. And he said, don't you worry about me, Sheriff. The Lord's got me, he's got a plan. God's gonna save me. So the sheriff drove away. Well, sure enough, that river, it started rising very rapidly. And the next day, Mr. Johnson had to go to his barn and climb up on the third story of the roof to be safe. And there he was. Trees are covered in water. Houses disappeared underwater. And he hears in the distance a helicopter. And the helicopter comes. They lower the basket. A brave soul climbs out and says, Mr. Johnson, I'm here to rescue you and take you to safety. Will you please get in the basket? And Mr. Johnson says, don't you worry, son. God's got me. It's going to be all right. He said, are you sure? He says, oh, I know. God's going to save me. He said, all right. And that brave man climbed back in that helicopter and they flew away. Well, later that night, Mr. Johnson died. He went to heaven and he arrived rather perturbed. And he approached St. Peter about it. He said, listen, Pete, what's up? I thought God was going to save me. And here I am dead in heaven. And St. Peter said, well, Mr. Johnson, let me ask you a question. Um, was there a man in a car who came by to take you to safety? He said, well, yeah, there was. But, but, but. He said, Mr. Johnson, hold on. Was there not a man who came by in a boat and said, I'm here to take you to safety? He said, well, yeah, there was that guy. He says, but, 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 but. He said, man, wait a minute. And was there somebody in a flying vehicle that came to take you to safety? He said, well, well yeah, there was. He says, Mr. Johnson, God can only offer you the rescue. It is up to you to accept it. And you know, there was this awkward pause. And then St. Peter said, by the way, welcome to heaven. Demetrius will show you to your mansion now. So, you know, we can all be that same way, though, right? We can, we can see warnings and we can take them seriously, but sometimes we won't act on them. And we cannot expect God to do for us what we're not willing to see when he clearly warns us, when he recognizes uh, what we're, what's approaching. He gives a rescue plan and we refuse to accept it. It's God's rescue plan that we're going to talk about today and how we are part of that rescue plan and what he's offering us. So let's pray as we begin our, our study today. Father, thank you for calling us together, your ecclesia, your called out ones, the ones who, who love you and seek you. And today, as we celebrate love, like George said, your love is the most overwhelming love in the history of the world. And we're thankful for that. Help us today to uh, absorb that love. And then as we go out this week to, to port back in the lives of those we love and we know in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I think you all can recognize and see that we are and we have been throughout all of history involved in a great cosmic struggle between good and evil. Uh, Jesus said that no man knows the day nor the hour when the father will return. Um, and we don't know when that will be. But many of us today, as we look across the landscape of our world, we can see many of the pieces that are necessary for the culmination of all things being put into place. The things that are necessary for the return of Christ and the rise of Antichrist. 
and it seems that the world stage is being set for this showdown between good and evil. Now, if you have ever attended a play before, a theatrical production, you know that before the curtain goes out, all the parts for the set are brought out on the stage in preparation for the drama to take place. The stage hands bring out the various pieces and they put them out there and they give the actors a place for the action to happen. Now, I cannot say when the Lord will return, but I can tell you this. The return of Christ is closer today than it was yesterday. Now, as we look forward, I can say that if this is not the time for the return of Christ, God is missing an excellent opportunity because of all the things that have been aligning in our world. When we look at today's events in the Bible, uh, we will see that we can discover great insight for what is happening today based on what happened in the past. The plans and purposes of God are laid out in the foundational events. So if we look at the, uh, at the events in Genesis, the places where something begins, um, when it starts in Genesis, it is concluded and resolved in the book of Revelation. Think of the city of Jerusalem. I think Jerusalem is a favorite place of God on earth. It is of all the beautiful places in the world, it is the one place that God picked as his place for all the events of time to play out the critical role between good and evil. The problems of our history are manifested there in our world today. Now, there's another city, God established Jerusalem, but there's another city that Satan established. Satan established this place to work out his plans, his plans against God. The name of that city is Babylon. So when we look in the book of Genesis, if you have a Bible, turn to chapter 11. And in chapter 11 of Genesis, we read the story of the grandson of Noah. His name is Nimrod. Please remember that before the judgment of the flood, when God looked across the world, he saw that everything was a continuous evil. Everyone's thoughts were all about it. The wickedness just stood out, but Noah stood out because Noah walked habitually with God. Because one man was faithful, we are here today. God spared life because of what he saw in Noah. But the righteousness of Noah did not translate. It did not just pass down automatically in the DNA of, of Noah from his sons to his grandsons. Now, Nimrod was a very rebellious man. He, uh, he sought to go directly against what God had wanted to do. Now, there may be a lesson for that in, uh, for us and for you in that. Now, think about this. You may love God. You may serve God. You may worship God. But the worship and love that you have for God will not automatically transfer to your children and your grandchildren. You have to live it out. You have to work it out. You have to be intentional in the lives of the ones you love in your family. God saves individuals. He works in nations. And that work is done through the family. We must be involved in the discipleship of our families. I want us to take a look at a few lessons in chapter 11 and see how Babylon affects us today. And I want you to be equipped for what is coming. Read with me, please, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, it seems crazy, a crazy proposition to imagine the whole world communicating in one form of language. I often say when I work here with y'all that we are separated by a common language, right? We speak English, but, you know, uh, Bahamian English and Carolina English are a little bit different. And now you think about, like, how we describe you're, you're laughing, aren't you? Yeah. Well, think about how we describe a car, right? Well, first off, uh, we call it a vehicle. We don't call it a car. And then there's the different parts of the vehicle. Uh, we call it a hood. You can call it a bonnet, right? Well, then you've got the boot. We call it a trunk. 
We've got a glove box. You call it the pigeonhole. However, I submit to you that our world today, as much as language is, is separated in terms of how we, we write and speak and communicate, today our world does have one language. Our world today communicates in the language of images. With one image, I can communicate to you all the emotion of an event, whether it is uh, something tragic that's happened, a natural disaster like what happened here. Maybe it's a, a triumphant moment, an athlete winning a, a sporting event. But that single photograph, I can relate all of that to you. And if you think about it today, as I've traveled around the world, I find that even when you go to the, the most desperately poor parts of the world today, everybody has a cell phone. Everybody has access to that image. They can all communicate in the language of images. It's one of those things that I think Satan has been preparing us for. Not that anything's wrong with cell phones necessarily, but he is preparing for that moment where he can re-communicate with language to everyone who can all understand it. Now, verse 2. As the people migrated from the east, they found on the plain and the land of Shinar, Babylonia, and they settled there. It's interesting that God, when the flood was over, he did not command Noah and his family to build cities. He asked them to actually go out, to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the world, repopulate. So in my Carolina English, the principle here would be to scatter out and have babies. All right? Now, principle number one is this. Whenever God asks you to do something and you disobey him, bad things happen. That seems pretty simple, right? Think about the story of our first parents, Adam and Eve. If they had just simply obeyed God and what he asked them to do, that simple one rule, how different our world would be. Obedience to God. Now think about this. Obedience to God is an act of worship. Because in that trusting in God, you are saying, God, I believe that you have a better way to do this than what I can do right now to meet my needs and satisfy my desires. Verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they made the brick, and they took the brick, and they put it together with bitumen as tar. Now please notice, there's a different kind of endeavor here. Typically, people in this, part, this time in history, they would have found the local materials, rocks, stones, timber, and they would have built with it whatever they wanted to build. But here, these people aren't using the God-given materials. What they're using instead is something they've made with their own hands. The same thing would be true for us. Principle number two. When you do not use what God has naturally given to you, and you do something else beside what He's given you and provided, you will not be satisfied. Remember last week when I told you about the ark and how after He finished building it, God said to cover it inside and outside with pitch. And we talked about that, that word pitch in the Hebrew is not tar and asphalt. It's actually atonement. Here, it's not atonement. Here it is tar. Here it is asphalt. They are making for themselves a structure. And they're not using the materials naturally occurring around them. And they bake these bricks. They make them with their hands. And they don't fasten them together with mortar. They use the tar and the pitch. Here's a point of reflection for you this week. Is there anything in your life that you are using to satisfy a desire of your heart, a longing in your heart, that is not in keeping with the plans and purposes of God? In verse 4, they, come, they said this, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole world. 
These people are going directly against the command of God after the flood. God told the family of Noah in the first verse of chapter 9 when they came out the ark, he said, repopulate the earth and fill it with people. The orders repopulate and disperse and scatter and then move them out. But they're going directly against what God has said to do. These folks, they're staying together. Now, pride is at the center of their endeavor because they said they wanted to make a name for themselves. And here's another question for you. Are you like that? Are you trying to make a name for yourself? Jesus asked his followers to deny themselves. Jesus asked his followers to uh, put aside their own desires. He asked them to take up their cross and follow him. Jesus asked us to live a life of sacrifice. Are you building the kingdom of God or are you building the kingdom of self? When we surrender our desires and our dreams and our goals to his principles above our priorities, we exercise faith in God. Now, this is going to be the Valentine's portion of the sermon today, okay? Are you ready? Pay attention. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Men, are you willing to put aside your plans and your desires for the desires of your wife? Are you willing to exercise your love that way, to submit yourself to her the way Christ submits himself to the church to the point of death? And each of us are different. And maybe you will set aside your hobby for just a few hours to spend some time with your wife, maybe just talking or playing with the kids. God, if you ask him, will show you what you should be doing to show love to your wife. Now, wives, you don't get off the hook either, okay? Wives, submit yourselves to the husband and the Lord. Now, wives, are you willing to set aside your plans for your husband? Do you see the marriage relationship here? The marriage relationship is two people who are supposed to be constantly trying to humble themselves to each other and submit to each other and put the other person above their own desires and needs. When you do that, then you have a healthy marriage. The best Christian marriages are ones that are gushing with this submission one to the other, trying to look out for the other one's plans and dreams and trying to mutually submit to each other. The ideas and concepts that we see introduced in this chapter 11 in Genesis are run throughout the scripture all the way to Revelation. The Babylon that is started in Genesis 11, it plagues God's people all the way through history. Satan uses the false worship practices that start there to lead his people astray over and over again. In fact, the last world dictator, the Antichrist in Revelation 13, he is going to join in and physically identify people with his system of worship. And if you do not join in that system of worship, you will be prohibited from engaging in the typical acts of commerce. You will not be allowed to buy, to sell, to trade, to have medicine. In the future, there will come a time when if you do not physically and openly identify with the Babylonian system of worship, you will be denied access to these just basic forms of commerce. And one day it will come. The Bible very clearly states it will happen. So when it does come, be attentive and recognize it. Be ready. Please 
do not take the mark of the beast. Now, there's this tower they're building, right? So what's that all about? Does God have a problem with height restrictions? No, I don't think so. I think the only restrictions we have in building is the physical restrictions of our engineering and our design. Uh, when I took Lindy on her first, our, our older daughter, on her first mission trip, we went to Myanmar, to Burma in Southeast Asia. That's on the other side of the world. Along the way, you have to stop somewhere. And that trip, we flew through Dubai. Dubai is a very oil-rich country in the Middle East on the Persian Gulf. We had a long nighttime layover. And so the group we were with, we decided to take a tour through the city that night. And uh, Dubai is home to the tallest skyscraper in the world. The name of the building is called the Burj Khalifa. It's 160 stories tall. That is 555 meters in the air. And as impressive as that structure is, our driver told us that the next tallest building in the world was already under construction in the same city. Isn't that amazing? They wanted to make a name for themselves and keep that name, much like what we see here. People are always trying to make a name for themselves. Now, the tower in Babylon is not just a, a height thing. There's something else that's going on here. Some people think they were maybe trying to have a, a place of security in case, in case God flooded the world again. They would be able to get to the top of the tower and escape the judgment of the flood. Other people think that they were uh, trying to reach God through the work of their hands. And let me tell you this. You cannot reach God through your good works. You cannot impress God with what you do. You cannot earn his love and his forgiveness. We can only receive the love and forgiveness of God by what Jesus does for us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus is our tower to heaven. He is the one that approaches, uh, gives us that gap. We can fill that gap to God. This past week on our church chat on the WhatsApp, there was a, a chat about Satan. Is Satan the God of the world? Satan, remember this, is a wannabe. Satan saw the glory of God in heaven. He saw the worship the angels were giving God that God received. And Satan saw that. And he wanted to take that throne from God. Satan wanted to take it all. He is a wannabe. He is a fraud. In his efforts to achieve what he desired, Satan produced counterfeits of the real thing. That's what Babylon is. Babylon is a counterfeit of Jerusalem. That's what the Antichrist is, a counterfeit of the real Christ. And that's what people who try and work their way to heaven are. They're counterfeiting the work that Christ does to save you. Now, I don't know if you've ever been stuck with a counterfeit piece of money, but it really stinks. And you know why? Because you're getting robbed. If the cashier where I live accepts a counterfeit bill and they take it to the bank and the bank refuses to accept it as currency because they're the final judge of legitimacy of currency, whether it gets back into circulation, that piece of money is then taken out of that person's paycheck. God is the originator. He's the final judge. He decides what is authentic. Now, Satan is smart, but he's not smart enough. He's a created being. And the Bible says Satan is the opposite of the creative force. Satan comes to steal. He comes to kill. He comes to destroy. Jesus said this, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill and destroy. And I have come that they may have life and have it life more abundantly. John 10, 10. In fact, the root word for the city of Babylon is Babel, confusion. And that's what Satan does. Satan is the author of confusion. God is the establisher of order. God has a plan for all of history. And that plan is for our redemption of this world. Now, geographically, God has picked 
a city to be central in the role of that plan, that city of Jerusalem. And Satan picks his city, his counterfeit, and that is Babylon. Nimrod built the city of Babylon, and God established the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world when Jesus comes to reign on the throne of David. It'll be for a thousand years. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Satan will establish a world leader, the last world dictator, the Antichrist, and he will make Babylon his capital city. And that kingdom will fall after seven short years. Daniel records that in chapter 7, verse 8, 11 and 20. In Daniel chapter 11, 36. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and 4. In Revelation 13 and 5. The two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. One good, one evil. One established for the purposes of God. And one established for the purposes of Satan. The people who followed Nimrod to build that city of Babylon. They built it and they were engaged in that work. And the building they were doing was wrong. God does not ask us to do our work to get our way to him. Jesus is our ladder to God. He bridges that goal. Now verse 5. And the Lord said, let us go down and see the city and the tower which the children of man are building. God's always interested in what we are doing. It, what we're going through. He sees it. He always wants to know what we're acting in and why we're acting out. God did this with Noah. He came down and investigated it for himself. He did this in Sodom and Gomorrah when the city was sinful and people were being afflicted and the prayers went up. God came down and to see them exactly what was going on. In verse 7 we see this. It says, come let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. In verse 6 he says, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They become one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing will be impossible for them. Please notice in verse 7 that God says, let us go down. Here's another evidence of scripture of the triune nature of God, what we call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I know some people have been brought up with this idea in their worship environment that the, that the Trinity does not exist, but the three-person nature of God is true. And I would ask you to keep an open mind towards that idea and be guided by scripture and not the traditions of men. Now, why would God be concerned about people building this building? Is it sinful? No, I don't think so. I think that God's concerned that people are trying to do things that are not going to fulfill their full potential that God has for them in their lives. They're attempting to do less than what God has planned for them. And they're not living up to that potential. It is because they are going against the plans of God. And think about this. All the time, all the money, all the blood and the sweat and the tears that the people who followed Nimrod and they poured into building that Tower of Babel, that false system of worship. Today, all of that is lost. Archaeologists disagree about which mound of sand or which group of baked bricks is actually the Tower of Babel. It was all lost. Now, all that effort could have been poured, could have been poured into something worthwhile and significant and eternal, but it was wasted on personalities and pride. Imagine if the grandson of Noah, Nimrod, had instead repented and devoted his life to doing what God has asked, his pursuits. Today, his name would not be a byword, you Nimrod. Now, if you have that here in America, you cross somebody a Nimrod, it's kind of a bad thing. Yeah. So the Lord dispersed them in verse 8, and they went over the face of the earth in the city. And there was the name of the tower called Babel, because the Lord confused their language and dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, I'm going to conclude with a very tragic story. 
As we look through Babylon, through the history of the scripture and Babylon, this is perhaps the most tragic of stories related to that city. King Hezekiah in chapter, in the second Kings chapter 20, uh, he was a king. Babylon was a young upstart nation and not nearly a world empire, not at all. And the king of Israel fell ill and word spread that he was ill and maybe going to die. And he would have died if it had not been for the prayers of the prophet Isaiah and the intervention of God, King Hezekiah would have died. It was during this time, this rising empire of Babylon, they sent emissaries to the ailing king to wish him well, to bring him gifts. King Hezekiah did not take Babylon seriously. He didn't think they were a threat. And as a result, he foolishly showed them all the treasures of Israel. The prophet Isaiah actually entered the palace as the Babylonian delegation was leaving. They were concluding the vision. And Isaiah asked the king, he said, Your Majesty, who are those people? And the king said, Just some upstart country called Babylon. Babylon? Did you say Babylon? He said, Yeah, I did. And he said, Well, what did you show him? He said, What do you mean what I showed him? I showed him everything. He said, You showed them what? Well, he showed them all the blessings God has given us. What did you show him? Well, I showed them the temple. It's covered in gold. I showed them the treasure we have. I showed them the army. I showed them the palaces. I showed it all to them. Why? I say it was beside himself. He said, do you realize what you've done? Do you realize that these people are going to go back and they're going to plot? They're going to plan. They're going to scheme. And one day they're going to come back here to Israel and they're going to take everything you've shown them and more. And the king said, when? Isaiah said, what? I said, when? When are they going to come back and do all this? When will this happen? The prophet said, I don't think you understand. They're going to come here. They're going to take your children. They're going to take your grandchildren. They're going to take all your treasure. They're going to burn your houses. They're going to burn your fields. They're going to take your wives. They're going to take everything you have. And the king said, when? When will this happen? And Isaiah said, after you're dead. And the king said, good. I don't have to worry about it, then do I? And you know what happened? In 2 Kings, chapter 25, years later, the prophecy was fulfilled. And King Zedekiah was caught. Babylon came. They surrounded the city for over a year. The people were starving. They were running out of water. And then desperately, the king tried to flee. He jumped the wall and took some of his soldiers with him. And he was captured. He was going across the plain. They captured him. They brought him to the king of Babylon in a tent. They captured all his children, and they forced him to sit there and watch as the king of Babylon killed every one of his children in front of him. And the last thing they did to that poor king was they came up and they plucked his eyes out, and they blinded him. It was the last image he saw was his dying children. Because he did not take the threat seriously. He was then carried off to Babylon, and he would be paraded in the street like a trophy of war. Don't think that you can just skate by in life and not worry about the spiritual well-being of your children and your grandchildren and your family. You must be active. You must be involved in their discipleship. You must be teaching them and talking to them about God. Why would God allow such a painful and horrific experience to occur in the life of a person? 
Well, there is a verse that gives us a clue. In 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31, it says this, Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder of what was done in the land, God left him to try him, that he might know what was in his heart. What is in your heart? Are you willing to have a conversation with someone in your family? Maybe to say to them, I'm sorry. Maybe to say I was wrong or I didn't get that right. I'm sorry I wasn't there when you needed me. And now I know a better way. Please listen to me and what I have to say. This is important. You know, the eternal destiny of your family rides on what you're doing. If you expect to see your family on the other side of life when you die, you have a responsibility to be active in their lives spiritually. You can't expect them to just respond when you haven't told them about the rescuer. You have to tell them about God. You have to live it out. You have to show them and talk to them. Your eternal destiny rides on how you respond to God, the rescuer. But their eternal destiny responds on how they depends on how they respond. Jesus said this, Behold, I am going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go and prepare a place for you, surely I will come again and take you to me. Imagine this. Imagine that you had not been on Guana since Hurricane Dorian. You haven't dealt with any of the destruction and the debris and the fixing. And while you've been away, someone has come. And they have repaired your property exactly to your taste and your liking, exactly to everything you love about it. And they've restored your home. And then that person, that person who loves you more than anyone else, goes and they bring you back and they show you what they've done. That person would be like Jesus for you. Jesus is doing that for you. He is preparing a place for you to be, a place that has everything you love and desire, that fits you perfectly, and he's going to come and take you there. You don't want to be there alone. You want to have family with you. You want to have friends with you. You want to have loved ones with you. That is the picture of the eternal existence. God is inviting you. He is asking you to bring your family with you. He's saying, don't come alone. Tell them. Tell them about me. Tell them about how much I love them. Tell them how much I have loved you, how I've sustained you in all these years, and good and bad. Invite them to join you in the eternal city of God. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful that you do invite us in. You ask us to join you in that eternal city, and you ask us to join you now. You ask us to live the eternal life right now, that abundant life right now. And you ask us to invite our families into that. Father, I pray now that any of us who have not been doing what we should be doing, to see that our families join us, that you would give us the opportunity this day, the opportunity this week, to sit down with them and talk to them in a very serious way about eternal matters, that you would give uh, your spirit to us so that we can speak to them clearly about eternity. These matters are not just pretend, they're not play, they're eternal, and they're deadly, they're forever. Give us a chance to speak to them, Lord, please. In your name I ask it to be done, amen.